Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. My name is Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we're talking about the frontman of Queen, Freddie Mercury. Before we get started, we have some content warnings for this episode. We're going to discuss homophobia, biphobia, and AIDS and AIDS-related death. We're also going to discuss the objectification of women, press harassment, and include brief mentions of sexual content, racism, violence, and drug use, including people unknowingly being given or taking drugs. We also wanted to know that December the 1st was World AIDS Day, and December as a whole serves as AIDS Awareness Month. AIDS is an incredibly important part of recent queer history, but it is, of course, not just history. There are a lot of great organisations working to raise funds and awareness to combat AIDS today, and we've included links to some of them in the description, including the Phoenix Mercury Trust, which was set up by Queen following Freddie's death. If you'd like to get involved with a fundraiser or with an educational program, there are some really great resources there to help you find one. If you don't have time to do that, that's fine, but it's still very worthwhile to become more educated as an individual, so we'd still encourage you to check those links out. The other thing that I wanted to say before we start this episode proper is just how weird it was to do an episode on someone who died in the 90s. Yeah. This is, I think, the most recent we've done. I used two main biographies to do this episode, which isn't that different from how I do it on any other historical figure. They were biographies by Leslie Ann Jones and Laura Jackson, but they're completely different beasts than biographies that I would normally read in that they're not treating him as a historical figure because that I guess would be kind of weird to do especially writing earlier than we are now when he passed away quite recently in some things but yeah the result is that they're not academic yeah the result is that you know they don't have bibliographies and they don't ever cite anything and good job guys you know they're not written by scholars they're written by journalists for the consumption of the curious public not to suggest that journalists don't like have integrity in how they research but in these ones they didn't necessarily seem to be too worried about providing you with where they got all this information from and so i yeah just have so many questions about where a lot of this information came from and that's just kind of how that is an example of the kind of thing that i was skeptical about comes up quite quickly we'll talk a little bit about Freddie's early life and then We'll get into that. So Freddie is born under the name Farrokh Bulsara on the 5th of September 1946 on Zanzibar. Zanzibar being an island off the coast of Tanzania. So I never knew that Zanzibar was an island until this second. And I was like, you're saying on Zanzibar? Yes, on Zanzibar. <laughs> <laughs> on the east coast of Africa. Freddie's family are Parsis, so followers of Zoroastrianism. I am not going to attempt to summarize what Zoroastrianism is. I did do some reading on it for the purposes of this episode, and then I kind of thought about what someone trying to summarize my religion would look like after like an hour of reading, and I decided that it was just best not to. Reasonable. Um, I understand that it's a very old religion, and that's like my main knowledge of it. Yeah, it's a quite old religion. They are followers of the teachings of the prophet Zoroaster. Are they from Persia? Like originally? Yeah, so the word Parsi means Persian. Okay, yeah. And then they fled Persia when it was conquered by Muslims and their religion became persecuted to India, which is and has been for quite some time the major centre of the Parsi religion. And Freddie is involved with Zoroastrianism as a child. He goes to Parsi fire temples, which is the place of worship 
of that religion and he's inducted at the age of eight in a sort of like traditional coming of age type ceremony. When he's quite young, the family moves to what the biography is called Bombay and which we would now call Mumbai. Is that just one of those like we anglicized it badly and then we tried again scenarios? Yes, but if, and then we tried again, it was, and then the Indian government said, like, enough of that nonsense. Okay, yes. <laughs> so they moved there for his father's work, and conveniently this is where the major concentration of Parsis mm. is at the time, and also now, so that's good for them, I suppose. But getting back into my scepticism about these sources and what they're adding in and what is, like, something that they genuinely got from somewhere, Laura Jackson describes the busy streets of... Mumbai, and she talks about Freddie's fascination with wily Arab street traders and snake charmers. And I'm like, did you um like did you get that from anywhere, or did you just like imagine what you think an Indian street scene looks like? Yeah, I feel like it's the second one. Like it's pretty common in biographies to get that kind of color. Yeah, and I think that there are a few moments of that where like the biographers kind of feel like in order for the story to keep rolling, they need to like add in a little bit of like a reason why someone did. Something or something like that and so they're just kind of like padded a little bit and it's really hard to tell where that starts to come in because again like a lot of it there isn't really a source for yeah like even quotes sometimes will just be like a friend of freddy's told me that and it's like which one yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. there were a lot of quotes that they would use as like a quite key quotes to like influence how they understood a certain part of his personality or something like that And it would say, like, this quote is from this person. And then, like, if you sort of looked into it a little bit, it was apparent that they didn't really know Freddie that well. They just, like, toured with him once or something. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, like, sometimes they're like, Brian May said. And I'm like, all right, like, fine. I accept. (laughs) I accept, yes. So that is the kind of thing we're dealing with here. Okay, I wish biographers would just write really, really dry biographies where they just gave me all the facts in chronological order. Like, me too, but I don't think, to be clear, that that is objectively the only good type of biography. No, just when you're yeah. trying to do it for historical research rather than just, like, personal interest yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, like, I think that both of these books are, like, fairly decent reads if you're just kind of like, huh, Freddie Mercury was pretty famous, I wonder what he was, like, like as a guy. That were fine. Yeah. yeah. You know? It's also quite difficult to get an idea of a lot of different things in Freddie's life because he was a notoriously private person. His privacy is such that for a while after Queens start to get famous, the press don't even know what his real name is, mm-hmm. which I don't feel like would happen these days. But <laughs> no, they'd Google you and me and be like, oh, okay, that's your name, and that would be mm-hmm. it. You know, he very rarely gave interviews. We very rarely have his own words about things that happen in his life. And it was a kind of weird thing where I felt, you know, Freddie Mercury lived so recently that comparatively I felt like I could almost get a better sense of, say, Horace Walpole, who we did an episode on not too long ago, and who lived in the... 18th century because we had so much of his own words I felt like I could get a real sense of his personality Mm -hmm. but with Freddie it's like well I really don't know and there's the other layer as well of the fact that he is a rock star and he has you know a big rock star persona but you do have to keep in mind that like Freddie Mercury as a human being isn't just the front man of Queen so you know it's a tricky situation anyway so we don't know a lot about his early life we do know that he went to boarding school from the age of eight And he excels there at athletics and music. He does very well at the piano. He does choir. He does theatre. Is this still in Mumbai or in India somewhere? It's a bit outside of Mumbai, but it is in India, yes. It's here that he's given the name Freddie, which his family also starts using. He's separated from his family there, uh, and it seems to have been quite hard on him. It is very young age to be separated from your family for much of the year. We do have a quote 
from him about this period of his life. And he said, one thing boarding schools teach you is how to fend for yourself. And I did that from a very early age. It taught me to be independent and not to have to rely on anybody else, which is a stark lesson to learn at eight. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. frankly. (laughs) He also had his first, like, hint of a gay experience at least at boarding school uh saying i've had the odd schoolmate chasing me it didn't shock me there were times when i was young and green it's a thing schoolboys go through i'm not going to elaborate any further <laughs> i mean this is like the invariable feature of historical boarding school experiences i feel yeah yeah i feel like we'd have a bingo card in the queer as fact episodes and like gay experience at boarding school would be on there yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well i mean if the two like features of boarding schools are like you're emotionally isolated because you're too young to have left your family and gay stuff is here like they feed into each other as well yeah you're like i need like affection from someone well (laughs) (laughs) i do like that he was like i had schoolmates chasing me like i wasn't surprised he seems quite matter of fact about sort of like queer stuff Mm -hmm. uh, in interviews but we'll get onto that later he is still a child now (laughs) yes They move back to Zanzibar when he is a teenager, but political unrest in the area leads to his family relocating to England when he's 17. And the move to England is quite difficult for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He experiences a lot of racist bullying. And he really strives to assimilate into British culture and kind of try and distance himself from his background from this point forwards. Mm -hmm. Before we get too much further into it, I guess I should mention regarding his background and him distancing himself from his background the sources i looked at seemed to kind of conceptualize it as like you know he was born in zanzibar that was very exotic and interesting but then he moves to britain and decides he wants to be british and that's kind of like it which frankly if he's 17 when he gets to britain doesn't really no it doesn't and you know Again, part of the thing where we don't really know a lot about, like, his internal life. We don't know how he feels in more detail about his identity or anything like that in terms of race. But, like, being raised in a culture has an influence on how you see the world and think about things. I feel like I'm saying something a bit (laughs) too obvious here. (laughs) Um, That you don't get to just, like, turn off by assimilating. Yeah. And... I don't really have any other points to make about that. Like, it's not really going to come up frequently or anything like that. I just didn't want to sort of feed into that narrative of, like, and then he's basically just white and British from now on. Which no one, like, said, but I felt was kind of implicitly Mm -hmm. in the narrative a few times. Despite his parents' misgivings, at the age of 20, he goes off to art school, which is not a respectable thing for a young man to do at any point (laughs) in history, apparently. When we say art school, are we meaning like... Uh, Kind of like an art college. It's called Arlworth Polytechnic. He's studying like graphic design and things like that. Okay. And he does use those later on, like a lot of the the Queen crest and things like that he designed. Oh, I didn't know that. There you go. He's not remembered as being particularly remarkable or talented by people who (laughs) knew him at this time. He's quite reserved, and I think like there's just a lot of loud personalities at any art mm, school, yeah. and he doesn't stand out all that much. He does wear like velvet jackets and tight pants and has long hair and whatnot, being influenced by that like exciting 1960s London rock and roll sort of. I'm willing thing. to bet that many people at art school were. Oh yeah, doing yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like someone who knew him at that time was like, oh yeah, he wore that stuff. But there were a lot of people who wore that and went like another level. 
at art school, he makes friends with a man called Tim Staffel, who plays in a band called Smile. And the guitarist in Smile is called Brian May, and the drummer is called Roger Taylor. Some name drops there. Some <laughs> name drops there. From Smile to Queen, they definitely improved the name. <laughs> <laughs> and Tim introduces Freddie to Brian and Roger, and they get along quite well. Do you think Tim, after that, when he sees Queen, is like, drat? Let that go. Maybe. (laughs) Smile is, like, quite a regular feature on the London college circuit. Mm -hmm. They're doing pretty well for themselves on that kind of, like, small-time level. They do play in support of Pink Floyd once in 1968, which is pretty cool. And, yeah, they get along really well with Freddie, and Freddie really wants to be in this band. And they do not want Freddie in the band. Uh, They ignore his hints, which I think are less hints and more him being like, this band would be much better if I was in it. And they're like, no. No, no. <laughs> um, they're quite skeptical of his vocal skills at this point. <laughs> yeah, Tim really must have been like kicking himself. <laughs> Tim probably isn't a millionaire and he maybe could have could been. Be. But Freddie spent as much time and smile as possible. He would attend their rehearsals, he would go to their gigs and kind of heckle them, I think. Just a very obnoxious groupie. Oh yeah, very obnoxious. He would just kind of like very bluntly point out overall weaknesses of their performance and individual weaknesses with them as performers and kind of be like, this is what I would bring to this band. And they were like, please stop. (laughs) So did you start by saying that Freddie got along very well with these people? He did get along well with them. He was just also kind of obnoxious. (laughs) I mean, I think that Freddie Mercury just obviously had to have the charisma in life to carry off being kind of obnoxious, like given his entire career. Yeah. yeah. To be frank. Yeah. Yeah. Like I Queen's a good band, but they're not not obnoxious. <laughs> True. <laughs> Around this time of his life, he is dating a woman called Mary Austin, and they start living together. Freddie and Mary are in a sexual and romantic relationship for six years during their 20s. After that relationship ends, which we'll get into in due course, they remain devoted to each other for their entire lives. Like, they are the most important person in each other's lives, or at least among the Mm -hmm. key people. There's a lot of weird speculation from the biographers about exactly what their relationship constituted of and i think this is mostly just because people are kind of weirded out by anything that doesn't fit into a neat box of what we think relationships are so jones talks about like oh maybe she played like a mother role to him and stuff like that it's like maybe she did but i don't feel the need to like pick it this that much yeah um they were very devoted to each other and i think that's enough freddie said of mary all my lovers asked me why they couldn't replace mary but it's simply impossible the only friend i've got is mary and i don't want anybody else to me, she was my common-law wife. To me, it was a marriage. We believe in each other. That's enough for me. I couldn't fall in love with a man the same way as I have with Mary. Okay. So we'll, you know, I guess keep that in mind and we'll yeah. come back to it. Okay. Mary, uh, in these days, is supporting him financially sometimes. So they're quite poor, you know, they're living quite hand-to-mouth, and she'll help him out. And then later on, when he is very, very wealthy, he supports her and mm. makes sure her needs are provided for. That's good. So Freddie, as we mentioned wears the sort of like velvet jackets and long hair and whatnot which is quite subversive at the time like that's genuinely a kind of subversive unacceptable thing for a man to wear at the time so he comes across as quite effeminate and he's remembered as having a very flamboyant attitude and like gesturing expansively and calling people darling and things like mm-hmm. that and at the time his friends have said that they thought that he was just a straight man who put on this really 
a feminine attitude because of the fashions of the time. You get that thing sometimes where on the one hand you're telling us that this was genuinely quite subversive and unacceptable, and on the other hand people are going... The fashions of the time within a subculture okay, that was yeah, subversive yeah. in society. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Like, the musical scene they're in exists and has cultural norms in and of itself, but, yeah. you know, musical scene cultural norms are rarely in line with mainstream cultural norms. Yeah, no, fair enough, yeah. Yes. Barry Mitchell, who is Queen's bassist for a while before they find John Deacon, said, I was sure it was all part of the act. I never wanted seriously about him being gay because there was no sign of anything other than a heterosexual relationship with Mary. It's also worth noting that the people who are looking back on his life and sort of talking about if they suspected anything, everyone uses the word gay to describe his sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that Jackson understands this period of his life to, to be a time when he was suppressing his homosexual tendencies. Right, yeah, yeah. We'll return to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. He did say he couldn't be in love with a man the same way he was in love with Mary, so, like, that's mm. a factor. I assume we'll discuss later on. (laughs) But presumably that leaves open the space to be in love with a man differently to how he's in love with Mary. Yeah. I had rather planned for us to have a discussion. Sorry. Sorry, carry on. I knew I'd have to rein you in. (laughs) (laughs) That was the plan I had made. So because Smile absolutely will not let him in the band, he joins another band, Ibex. That's a better name than Smile, but still not as good as Queen. He actually doesn't like the name. He thinks the name Wreckage would be better. And the way he makes this happen is he calls up all of the other members of the band and he says, hey, me and the other guys have been chatting and we all think that Wreckage would be a better man. Are you okay with that? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I suppose. And then they later figure out that he'd said that to all of them without talking to one of them first and just kind of cons them into it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Really? So, like, Freddie has very set ideas about what he wants his musical acts to look like and he will get them there. <laughs> Um, That's so dodgy. You could never do this now because you'd be in a group chat. (laughs) You don't phone people. Um, He very firmly believed that a band needed to be worth looking at, not just hearing. Or as Ken Testy, one of the other band members, put it, Ibex had been into jeans and French coats, whereas Freddie was more your satin and fur man. Mm-hmm. So they were doing these like quite small pub gigs, but no matter what the gig was, Freddie would always show up with like full theatrics. And you can really see from these early days, as I kind of just alluded to, that he has a vision. Yeah. And he has ambition. And a lot of people comment on him having, and also in Queen once they get together generally, having this like just surety that they're onto something here and that they are going to succeed. And not in a kind of like it is fate or like an arrogant way, just like, no, we're, we're going to get there. That's nice. Yeah. People that they worked with saying, like, it was kind of interesting or like refreshing to work with young men who were confident about what they were doing as opposed to a lot of other bands starting out who had a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. yeah. Where they just, like, believed that they deserved a place at the table. Yeah. I still just love the fact that he got into a band that didn't, like, really fit his image and he was just like, all right, don't like this name, don't like your outfits, all right. We can, I can work with this, though. So you can yeah. see why I smile and let him in. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> he graduates with a degree in graphic art and design and he spends a while living in this, like, tiny flat just crammed with a rotating cast of their friends, sleeping, like, however many to a bedroom. He's making money by selling clothes at Kensington Market and playing gigs for tiny amounts of money at the market. And this is a story that's not really anything to do with anything. They would buy these big bags of marijuana and tea mixed together, like tea leaves mixed together. And then they would take them home and like pick 
them together in yeah. order to smoke the weed. I sound so like, yes, in order to do the marijuana. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> anyway, so one day Freddy comes home and he finds the still-mixed bag next to the kettle and just makes tea out of it and gets off his face. <laughs> Freddy doesn't really do drugs at this point, so like, off his face. And when he sobers up a bit, they explain to him what happened and he thinks it's hilarious and he can't wait to pull this prank on somebody else. Frankly, I'm surprised that they were ever like, sorting out these leaves or anything and not just drinking tea out of them in the first place. All I can think of is like, did he have milk with his weed? Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah. Milk. So they have this house party and the house party's going and the house party's a bit too loud so someone calls the cops and Freddy's like look I'm so sorry would you like some tea and biscuits oh my god <laughs> Freddy and he gives the weed tea to the police Freddy <laughs> and I, like nothing bad really seems to come of it I guess that happened yeah <laughs> I mean, I guess they only came round to, like, be a noise complaint. Yeah. So presumably they, like, drank the tea, got back in the car, and then were like, Bob, I may need to pull over. <laughs> At the start of the 1970s, Tim Staffel dropped out of smile, <laughs> and Freddie was like, aha, <laughs> my chance. And Freddie leaves Wreckage, and he forms a new band with Roger Taylor and Brian May, so the core Queen lineup has come together. It's Freddie who suggests the name Queen, but they all unanimously agree that it's a great idea. It's short, it's memorable, it's very majestic, and it is also quite subversive as well at the time yeah. with its gay implications. Mm. And he, just checking, he didn't have to make any like sneaky phone calls to get this one. No, done. they were just like, yeah, let's do it. All right. Yes. There were people at the time that they knew or were involved with mm-hmm. homicidizing the band in a little bit. He was kind of like, you can't get away. Like, people won't allow this. Yeah. You know, it was quite a big deal. And it goes along with their quite, like, theatrical, sort of gender non-conforming image that Freddie brings to the band. So he has kind of gone to the next level at this point with his own outfits. He's wearing these very, like, satiny, skin-tight, one-piece outfits, like, slashed to reveal his chest, and he teases his hair and curls it and whatnot. It's a very femme look. I think, you know, because his later looks are much butcher, which we'll yeah. talk about, obviously. We don't think of this era of him very often, and it's like, they're very nice photos, we'll post some of them. Incidentally, he will sometimes wear replicas of Najinsky's costumes. Oh, actually, no, I've seen this. I've seen him in the... The fawn costume. yeah. Mm. Around this time is also when he decides to change his own name. So Bulsara obviously marks him out as a person of colour mm-hmm. and he's very careful to avoid mentioning his background in any way in interviews which he still is doing kind of semi-regularly at the time because he's not yet famous enough to just be like nah. no yeah and so he deliberately distances himself from his background by changing his name and he chooses mercury because it is the messenger of the gods <laughs> i mean we talked about the self-confidence before mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is just a little level up yeah, I mean, I feel like once you're putting on, like, a satin outfit and being like, nah, 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 make it more low-cut, like, you, you know. So at first, Queen isn't great live. Freddie's voice at this point is actually quite bad. It's quite flat. It's quite weak. Oh, really? uh, they always deny that he ever took singing lessons, but it's possible that he did take singing lessons, and there's really no shame in that, frankly. Yeah, like, I would assume, like, when you said that, I was like, oh, cool, so he took some lessons and then he became great. But they were like, no, 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 I was just, like, burst, fully formed like this. Yeah. Uh, obviously... 
after they spend a while, you know, doing live shows and so forth, he ends up with like quite a good voice. <laughs> yes, what? <laughs> they are quite controversial act in these days. So they're playing in like town halls and colleges and pubs, and they're just kind of a bit too loud and a bit too effeminate for those sorts of settings. And they just work really hard. Basically, they like sit down and analyze their performances and and patch mm. the weak points, as Freddie had been trying to do from the audience for Smile, and he's <laughs> getting better until they're a very solid live act. Are they like writing their own music at this point? Or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1971, they meet John Deacon after going through a few bassists, so now the final piece of the Queen lineup is in place. They also get their lucky break in that there are some new recording studios being set up and they're having trouble with isolating sound. So they have like a bunch of different studios and they're trying to make sure that if you have bands recording in all of them or in a few of them, they won't interfere with each other. And so they're doing things like firing a gun in one room and recording in another to see (laughs) if you can hear it, which I guess is another sign of the times have changed. (laughs) And they decide what they really need is to have a rock band play in one room while they record in another to try and fix the isolation there and someone knows someone and queen ends up getting essentially like free time in a professional recording studio to make their demos i hope one day someone's like what we really need is a podcast in the other room (laughs) (laughs) not only do they get to record these for free they also get the chance to try and lure in record producers and the record producers are coming around to see the new spaces and queen is hoping that they'll be picked up by one of them. Normally musicians recording in studios kind of just get on with it and they're quite practical about it, but Freddie seemingly cannot stop himself from doing all of the theatrics and all the arm movements every time and everything. And so he just really puts it on. That doesn't really link into anything else I'm saying. I just thought we needed to know that. That's just an important yes. fact about Freddie. <laughs> that, you know, I'm sure you're not surprised. Like, not at all. Yeah. No. And their plan works. Like, a, a record producer comes past and is like, what is this? And they go to the owner of the label that they're from. And the owner is initially kind of unconvinced and goes to see them live and offers them a deal on the spot. All the note-taking was obviously worthwhile. Hmm. So now we're kind of going to gloss over what happens next because it's quite difficult and frankly quite boring to portray a gradual rise to fame in that, you know, so they're going to record a bit and then they're going to tour and then they're going to record some more and it's going to sell a little bit more and then they're going to tour a little bit more and more people will show up and so forth and frankly, like, after 50 pages of that, I didn't want to tell you it. That's fair enough. They shift management a few times, they work really hard to try and get publicity out there. There's quite a while where they're, like, famous but not yet famous enough to just be secure in their fame and when they're not really making money and then eventually they are. Yeah. They're set. So just trust me, they get famous. Okay. Okay. There's like a montage. Yes. We start to see, even from these really early days, some of their iconic songs and some of their iconic clothes. So Seven Seas of Rye comes out in 1973. Killer Queen, which gets to number two on the British charts, comes out in 1974. Freddie gets an outfit that you might have seen. It's like this white satin outfit and it has like pleated wings. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very beautiful. He gets that made for their first headlining tour because he's like, well, you know, obviously I need to be more to look at now. I wonder if the rest of the band were like, Freddie, Freddie, stop. We can't all buy these outfits. (laughs) They never... They never tried to, like, no. match the image. They do go a kind of a little bit femme by the, like, standards of the day, but they never try and get on Freddie's level. Oh, okay, not, yeah, yeah. not 
possible. Not worth doing. <laughs> yeah, impossible. <laughs> it's not something that's really on the table, you know. Like Freddie is the front man. He is the big, you know, piece of showmanship at the front of this band. So of course he's yeah going to the next level of all these outfits. And Brian May is like, I can play guitar very well, cool. and that is enough. We also, from these early days, get one of the most iconic parts of their live shows in that Freddie is struggling with this really old bad microphone stand and it just breaks in his hand (laughs) and he's like wait a second and it becomes his signature prop because it's very easy to maneuver you know his performance on stage is always like very active like jump around and so forth and so this lends itself to that much better than having a whole microphone stand there so he quickly figures out that he can use it as a you know fake guitar to play along with <laughs> on when Brian May's doing a guitar solo and he realizes that he can suggestively kind of like extend it out from his crotch as a phallic gesture and he loves it. <laughs> they actually spend a really long time being criticized by the music press. Mm-hmm. So like their general reception is quite positive. Like the public like them quite a bit, but the music press does not. Partly this is perhaps because of the way that they present gender in their shows. Mm-hmm. And partly the, I think that this is just because it was very difficult from the start to pigeonhole them into a particular genre and they didn't stay still in terms of the genres they played in. Yeah. And I think it's easier when you have something that kind of like, you know, stretches pre-existing norms or kind of like crosses boundaries of, of genre and is doing something new just to criticize it instead of kind of taking a chance on praising it. So there's a lot of old, like very funny reviews where they're like, they're going nowhere, this is garbage. It's <laughs> <This is> great. <laughs> and I think perhaps the best example of them doing interesting things with music is... <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. So they're working on their 1975 album, A Night at the Opera, and Freddie pitches Bohemian Rhapsody as a concept, as the fever dream that it is. <laughs> Queen is generally quite collaborative with their music. They've all contributed to big hits on like some bands that have like one or two people yeah. who are just take care of the songwriting. But this one came just sort of seemingly fully formed out of Freddie's mind. Because you said the fever dream that it is, I'm literally picturing Freddie just waking up one day and being like, Mama. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's almost like there's something in that when you're doing something that kind of left of field, you kind of have to have it fully formed before you present it to yeah. someone. So you can be like, no, I swear, this makes sense. Look. Yeah. There was an anecdote. I can't remember who it was. It wasn't one of the band members. It was like someone in that general circle told where like they went over Freddie's house and he was like playing for them on the piano. And he's like, so this is how this song I'm thinking about is going. And then it's like, and then that's where the opera part comes in. And the guy was just like, what? Like, what? And they're just like, wow, we did it. <laughs> and the person just being like, what? <laughs> yeah. And Freddie very carefully oversees the entire process of making Bohemian Rhapsody. He has like very set ideas about what everything needs to be. So for those of you who don't know, I guess we'll summarize Bohemian Rhapsody now. <laughs> so Bohemian Rhapsody... <laughs> You can just go and listen to Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. right now. Pause this, go and listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. We can't play it because of copyright, but, like, listen. do it. We could not have justified playing it in its, like, entirety. <laughs> no. I'm playing a random section kind of defeats the point of showing you what Bohemian Rhapsody is like. <laughs> but for those of you who don't know, Bohemian Rhapsody is bananas. Um, <laughs> am I wrong? It doesn't have any kind of, like, traditional structure. Would you say that's fair? There's no chorus. There's no chorus. 
chorus, which is a bold move. There are no verses either. There's just a lot of stuff. It starts with this like opening a cappella section, and then there's a piano ballad, and then there's a guitar solo, and then there's some opera for a bit, and then it goes into a hard rock song. And that's the song. (laughs) True. It's just what it is. Its lyrics are this sort of like nihilistic musings of someone who's just killed a man. (laughs) And there's been a lot of speculation about what those lyrics mean. You know, if people are meant to picture someone who sold his soul to the devil or if it's someone waiting to be executed the next day. There's been a lot of guesses about what we can glean about Freddie's personal life from them that I think are all a bit tinfoil. My favourite of the crackpot Bohemian Rhapsody lyric meaning stories I saw was someone being like, perhaps the man that Freddie is killing is his heterosexual self as he moves into his homosexual phase of life. And I was like, <laughs> all right, buddy, you do. Homosexual <laughs> phase. Which I like I think is a really weird and homophobic reading of those lyrics, given that it's like, hey, I just killed this person. I have thrown my life away. Uh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Are the lyrics of Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the band never says anything about what the lyrics to Bohemian Rhapsody mean. They all keep it very mysterious. Personally, I would very willingly believe that Freddie's honest answer to that was just like, hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, frankly, I'd be happy to believe that he was like, I don't know, I was writing a song about a guy who killed a dude. He killed a man. Now he's dealing with Put the consequences. His head. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm unclear if we can get sued for this now. <laughs> I don't think we can get sued. I think we'll be right. I think we'll be right. If Queen sues us, how publicity will be like off the charts. Yeah, that's true. I hope Brian makes us into this right now. Hey, Brian, help us out here. It's also a very complicated song to make. It takes him three weeks. Mm-hmm. And just involves a lot of figuring out logistically how to do things and dubbing things over things hundreds of times until tapes are almost worn out. Brian May has a story where be like, I held the tape up to the light and I could see through it entirely because we'd recorded over it so many times. And I was like, okay. They unanimously agree that it is going to be the first single off of the album. And a lot of people warn them against this. It seems just as likely to destroy their careers as make them. They're warned that no one is going to play it on the radio because... It's like ten minutes long. It's five minutes long. As if. I know, I didn't believe that either. We were discussing this the other day. I was like, it's at least like nine. (laughs) (laughs) And a song slot on the radio is three minutes. So in order for the radio to play it, they have to decide that they're going to play it instead of two other songs. And Queen, with their confidence about themselves, just goes, all right, I'll have to play one less song. And if they're going to play it five times a day, then they'll play five less songs. Mm. And they do, I guess. But this is like a quite a big ask. Like This is in the phase where they're famous, but they're not yet like a canonical rock band. And so what Freddie does is he takes the record to his friend, the DJ Kenny Everett, and Kenny is quite sceptical. He's like, all right, play it for me. And Freddie plays it for him. And he goes, yeah, no, it's going to be number one for a century. Fine, whatever. Like, do okay. whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so Freddie leaves him with the leaked copy. And so Kenny goes on the radio and it's like, I have this amazing new song here. It's not released yet. I can't play. Oh, my finger slipped. And then he does that 10 more times. <laughs> Good job, Kenny. And the switchboard is swamped with callers trying to get through and saying, what is this song? Where can I get it? And so the song comes out and it sells enormously well and Queen are very famous forever. <laughs> Good job. Thanks, Kenny. Yes. Great marketing there. It is, you know, one of the best rock songs of all time. It's still regarded as that to this day. It frequently comes very high, if not number one, in polls on the topic. And it does a great deal of the time to secure their status as, like, people to watch. 
it is interestingly very difficult to perform live or on TV because of like what it is. And so they set about making a promotional video to screen on TV instead of them performing it. So music videos exist at this time, but they're not very elaborate. They're kind of just like the band stands somewhere interesting maybe and they play the song and queen kind of does something different oh it's that weird video with the faces yeah so yeah the most iconic image of queen probably i would say is that image of them they're like four faces arranged in a kind of like diamond formation yeah and it's like very dramatically lit Mm. and then they do the song and so they make this kind of like you know weird for the time music video and this isn't something that bands really do at the time and this kind of becomes the like prototype of a music rock video and it changes the way that rock music is marketed forever Mm. and really brings in the music video that has Mm. concepts as a thing so if they weren't famous before they're definitely goddamn well famous now and we've been talking a lot about queen for some reason so let's stop for a moment and talk about freddie who this episode is ostensibly about there's a quote i quite like from a rare interview that he did with radio one dj simon bates and Simon Bates says he believed there were three of him. One was professional and hardworking, the second was the party animal, and the third liked to be alone. So I guess I just wanted to remind us of how we have no idea who Freddie was. Well <laughs> yeah. In spite of the fact that we're making a podcast about him. Yes. Yeah. And I just wanted to talk a little bit more about what people's impressions of Freddie as an individual was like. He's noted as being very kind, very caring, very loyal to his friends. And this was especially noteworthy given that he's operating within this very macho sort of music mm-hmm. culture where, like, it's very blokey and, you know, like, in, in those kind of groups of young men, it's just never really encouraged for you to, like, take your friend aside and be like, hey, I noticed that you were really quiet today. Is everything going all right? Do you want to talk? But he would do that. Oh, what a good man. And that's just not something that people really did. When you said it was very blokey, I just pictured Freddie Mercury drinking a VB. They taught in Australia a bunch of times. Like, he probably did this in his life. And I'm, I would like to apologize to Freddie Mercury and to just Great Britain and the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, he could be very arrogant and kind of play the role of rock star a little too much. And this seems to have as you would expect, gotten worse as they got exponentially more famous. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was already fairly obnoxious, as <laughs> yes, we heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's a young man who's being handed fame. Fame is bad for people. I don't think he's been handed fame. Like, he well, worked pretty right, hard look, for this fame. Yeah, but he hasn't. He seems to have been to some degree self-aware of this, and he would kind of comment later that, like, yeah, you know, like, I, I thought at the time that there was a particular persona that was expected of me. I've grown up a bit. I don't care anymore. That's good. But in sort of like the middle phase of his career, he can be quite obnoxious. So there's also the fact that by the mid to late 1970s, he starts using cocaine. You know, would frequently like go backstage in the middle of shows to snort cocaine and then come out and be like very energetic all of a sudden. And this is speculated as potentially contributing to just his intense energy and also to violent outbursts that he would sometimes have. Mm. So someone who they told with remembered him once breaking a mirror over his head and then saying, sweep it up when something went wrong. And he would also demand special treatment beyond what could reasonably be provided, even if he'd been advised that that would be the situation with him. So he behaved like a stereotypical rock star behaves. Yes. Perhaps in line with the excesses of its frontman, Queen also continued to be more and more theatrical and became like a very stylized band. 
they would commonly use special effects, so like smoke mm-hmm. and fireworks and elaborate lighting rigs and so forth. And Freddie would toast the audience with champagne during their shows and things like that. And this is kind of viewed either as a very big strength or a very big weakness, you know, where some kind of felt like that they are the absolute masters of raw showmanship and others feeling that it undermined their ability to just display genuine emotion. And this sort of divide on their brand of music is exacerbated with the emergence of punk in sort of like 1976 to 1977. The ethos and the style of early punk bands like The Clash and The Damned and most notably, I suppose, The Sex Pistols is the complete antithesis of Queen Mm -hmm. and is reacting to bands like Queen, which they view as being everything wrong with music at the time. Part of what makes them risque and is getting them continued media attention is their performances and their music being quite sexual. So Freddie is often quite sexual on stage. He'll, as we said, kind of like use the mic as a phallus. Uh, he'll just kind of like rub his kind of like lower stomach, upper groin region uh, suggestively at the crowd. But they also sexualized women a great deal. Mm. So in 1978, they put out Bicycle Race and Fat Bottomed Girls as mm-hmm. a single. And to promote it, they have a bike race of nude women. And this is a massive scandal at the time. The company that had rented them the bikes said, look, we'll take the bikes back, but we're not taking the saddles back. And they have to buy 65 (laughs) saddles. So the cover of this album is a woman naked riding a bicycle from behind. So you can see her naked bottom, I guess is the word we'll use. (laughs) I don't know what word we consider appropriate for this podcast. And this is seen as pornographic by some people at the time Mm. because Mm -hmm. this is the 70s. They're called Sexist for It. Enemy, which is a very famous music magazine, captioned a photo of Freddie with fat-bottomed queen in response, which is, you know, not really on, guys. Uh, Some stores refused to carry the album and some wrapped it in a plastic sleeve that imposed a pair of underwear onto the (laughs) woman. I love whoever must have done the, like, custom order for that plastic sleeve printing. Yes. Queen also held outrageous parties. They're very known for this. They'd go on for days sometimes. One Halloween party they held in New Orleans is kind of held up as, like, an example of their excess to end all excess where they get this ballroom and they kind of, like, make it out to look like a swamp with trees and vines and smoke and stuff. And then... There's a lot of substances going around and there's a lot of naked women in that a naked woman is brought in on a giant platter of raw liver. Wait, what? Yep. And there are (laughs) semi-naked girls in cages and there are female mud wrestlers and there's topless waitresses and there's just like a lot of female nudity. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like we even need to pass that much comment on this. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's that, I suppose. That. So now to take a rapid gear shift to ballet. Oh. Wayne Eagling, who is a dancer for London's Royal Ballet Company, wants to do something to widen ballet's appeal. Mm -hmm. And so he recruits Freddie to do a performance with them to this end. And Freddie is very, very keen on this, has been fascinated by ballet for years. He shows up to the first meeting completely unnecessarily in, like, tights and ballet shoes. (laughs) Oh, that's so embarrassing. (laughs) It is. Yeah, I think they're kind of like, oh, okay. Uh, and so they're going to do a performance of Bohemian Rhapsody and Crazy Little Thing Called Love, which is Freddie Mercury's Elvis ripoff. I never thought about that, but like, you're not wrong. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of in an about way Freddie Mercury's sort of thought ripoff. <laughs> True. <laughs> and so they start rehearsing this. He doesn't really do ballet in that, like, he can't do ballet because he's yeah. not a ballerina, a ballet dancer. Yeah. A ballerina. He fundamentally is performing the songs and they're kind of doing ballet around him and he kind of interacts with it in fairly limited ways given that he is not a professional ballet dancer. Yeah. He liked to 
think he was a very good dancer, but like he wasn't really. Uh, and ballet was quite difficult for him in that he was used to having this like very spontaneous style where he just kind of did whatever he wanted to in the moment. And they had to really drum into his head that like you can't do that because it will throw the whole thing off for us. While they were rehearsing, one of the choreographers for London's Royal Ballet Company, so Frederick Ashton, walked in and was like, what's going on here? <laughs> Who is this? And Wayne has to kind of say, like, he's a famous rock star. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that this implies that Wayne just, like, went behind everyone's back and was like, I'm going to get Freddie Mercury. <laughs> and, you know, are we going to do a performance with him and whatnot? And so Frederick Ashton kind of looks at Freddie and goes, well, he's got terrible feet and like leaves. <laughs> anyway, the performance happens and the audience absolutely loves it. it sounds uh, pretty great. Is there a video of this? Yeah, one? there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Yes, we'll put it up on social media things. There's a lot of just like the general public who don't normally come to ballet, who come to see it because of Freddie Mercury, which is what Wayne wanted. And they really like it. But there's also a lot of like hardcore ballet fans who are quite stuffy. Yeah. <laughs> quite particular about how they like their ballet and they also really enjoy it so there's another music video under pressure maybe where he is like vacuuming in women's clothing and then the royal ballet is there i want to break free yeah Uh, so it starts off with the band all in drag as women they're all characters from Coronation Street, I think, from a British song. Oh, okay, okay. And so Freddie is, like, really camping it up with a vacuum cleaner. So he's got this, like, kind of brown bob situation going on. And he's got, like, the moustache, the, like, iconic Freddie Mercury moustache at the time. And so they do this kind of, like, campy, like, domestic scene. And then it cuts to just a completely unrelated scene where they kind of recreate Nijinsky's afternoon with a fawn. With Freddie as Nijinsky. And the, like, rock is made out of people and I've never watched the second half of this music video. <laughs> oh, yeah, you should. It's, it's an experience. My favorite Queen music video. It's a lot of fun. I've watched uh, the start and been like, oh, yeah, okay, so they do housework and drag. Yeah, I've, I've got the idea. Yeah, no, this. no, no. Then it just, like, cuts out of nowhere to, like, a contemporary dance experience. Mm. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's a thing where, like, all of the people, they kind of, like, lie in a row and they, like, roll over. And yes. Freddie's, like, lying on top of them. Yes. And so it, like, pushes him along. And someone who was involved in this was like, yeah, Freddie, like, really liked that part. (laughs) (laughs) That's so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so that's a music video. It's a lot of fun to watch. I'm definitely Um, watching that as soon as this podcast recording finishes. So Freddie Mercury, as we mentioned early on, had this, like, very, like, femme appearance going on, and his style starts to change and to get butcher, and so he wears these really, like, tight, shiny black PVC and leather outfits for a while, and then it kind of goes into, more, like, specifically motorcycle leathers and sideburns and chains, and then later on the kind of, like, blue jeans, white singlet, iconic mustache. I saw a few people mention this as him kind of, like, his image, like, straightening out, like, specifically becoming more heterosexual and i would just like to say that that's hilarious and straight people are, are very sheltered motorcycle leathers and chains is not what i'm very heterosexual all yeah all three of those are very iconic gay looks yeah and i think it is worth explicitly noting that the like fashions that were going on in the gay scene at various times over queen's career have very explicitly influenced queen's image yeah mm-hmm. yeah like, he wears leather, and then he wears motorcycle outfits. Like, even the jeans and the white singlet is so iconically, like, a gay image. Yeah, and yeah. Like, moustache the moustache, no, yeah. 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 Yes. Anyway, yeah. fans 
quite dislike this butcher image at first. They send disposable razors and nail polish to them in protest. <laughs> nail polish. Yeah, he used to wear a lot of nail polish yeah. and he stopped and they're like, put it back on. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he was like, oh god damn it, I've run out of nail polish. How can I make them give me more? Grumestosh? <laughs> Sure, okay. Rob Halford, the lead singer of Judas Priest, told Freddie to prove he was a man by riding a motorcycle around the Brands Hatch circuit. And Freddie said, yeah, I'll do it if you dance with the Royal Ballet. And they hear nothing from him ever again. (laughs) Good. So by the mid-1970s, Freddie has started to seek out sexual relationships with men. We don't know exactly when he started to do this. Jackson said that, according to one close friend, by 1975, Mercury had realised he was gay. Again, I would just love to know who that friend was. I really would. By 1976, Mary and Freddie had broken up because of his dissatisfaction with the relationship. He apparently told her that, I still love you, but I can't make love to you. And thereafter, he quite frequently will just, you know, go out after shows and so forth and cruise at gay clubs. I mean, he starts a very promiscuous period of his life. I might as well know that this is something that he noted about this. It's not just, like, hearsay from trashy magazines. Just the idea of someone just being in a gay club and Freddie Mercury just walking yeah. into yeah, well, like, well. <laughs> Apparently he was just like this massive sensation where everyone was like very aware of his presence. So <laughs> Peter Stringfellow, who was a club owner at the time, talked about like one night he was in a club and, quote, suddenly a weird atmosphere came over the place. There was a big buzz of excitement and everyone, about 2,500 people, had stopped whatever they were doing and turned to look at something. I wondered what on earth it could be. Then I found out Freddie Mercury had arrived. <laughs> Yeah, that's like, I guess, how I imagined that going down. Yeah, so yeah. everyone just, like, loses their minds and sort of walks through the door. I pictured, like, the opposite thing, where somebody's just, like, in a club and they just turn around and Freddie Mercury's just, like, just someone's, there. like, grinding up against them and they see the face yeah. and they're like... That's how I pictured this. <laughs> <laughs> it would be so weird trying to pick people up at a club and being Freddie Mercury. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. you'd be like, I guess I'll hit on you, but, like, this is a dumb deal, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, that's, you know, I'm not saying that that's, like, a commendable way to approach that, but, like, that's surely, that, how it, surely yeah. at that point, like, hitting on people is kind of like, we're, we're going through the motions a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> in 1979, he met his first long-term male lover, Tony Baston, and they lived together for two years. He's never faithful to his lovers. He's always sleeping with a bunch of different people. Just, like, openly or, like... Yeah, so it, okay. it's depicted by his biographers as kind of a situation where he was just, like... Kind of like, you know, you can put up with this or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna do this. I think with his later sort of like main gay lover, Jim Hutton, we do have quotes where Jim was like, oh, okay, I got really jealous sometimes. Mm. But I don't know, like, presumably some of his lovers were just like, oh, cool, yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Like, I did wonder if it was a little bit of like, I don't know, straight people and straight people. Yeah. 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 So Freddie never comes out publicly and he doesn't really come out privately either. He doesn't say anything to his bandmates for a really long time. There are quite matter-of-fact mentions from people who don't seem to have been really all that close to him. So Chris O'Donnell, for example, who was the manager of Thin Lizzy, who toured with Queen in 1976, just mentions it like, oh yeah, and then like after the shows, Freddie would go off to gay clubs to like hook up with someone. I mean, it's probably like... You're giving us that quote before. If every time you walk into a gay club, 25,000 people know that Freddie Mercury is in a gay club. Yeah, I think it's that thing where he never makes an announcement. He just kind of, like, goes about having sex with a bunch of men. And, you know, he's touring with all of these people. And they're kind of like, oh, I've noticed that Freddie has started having sex with a bunch of men. Yeah. (laughs) And Brian May's 
quote that he gave to the Times of London in 2017 kind of bears this out, where he says, The visitors to Freddie's dressing room started to change from hot chicks to hot men. It didn't matter to us, why should it? But Freddie had this habit of saying, well, I suppose you realise this, that or the other in this very offhand way. And he did say at some point, I suppose you realise I've changed my private life. So just kind of like four years after they were like, oh, so I've noticed that Freddie has sex with men now. He was like, so I suppose you've noticed I've had sex with men. (laughs) And they're like, yeah, (laughs) we have, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of interesting, though, that he'd say that, like, I've changed my private life. Like, he really has, like, shifted to sleeping with men instead, kind of. Yeah, we do discuss this on this podcast, like, reasonably often, where somebody starts out having heterosexual relationships and then moves on to having homosexual relationships, and we're like, was that just who they happened to meet at the time, or, like, what? Yeah, or, like, the opposite thing, where somebody has had a bunch of same-sex relationships and then got married in a straight way. <laughs> I don't know how, yeah, you know. There was a better thing to say there, but it's too late. That's come out. Yeah, but I guess that quote of I've changed my private life does show that Freddie viewed this as, like, a shift in what he was doing, not a, like, sometimes I sit with women, sometimes I sit with men. Like, Yeah, I guess I would also point out that this is Brian May saying this in 2017 in a not particularly direct quoting kind of yeah. way. Mm. And I think that's the case with, like, any number of quotes about this is that, like, they're all from decades later and like second hand mm. and things like that and so yeah like, you know i'm sure that they generally portray the truth but kind of like picking through them for like his internal life is yeah but yeah his experience basically does seem to have been that he like has this one very important relationship with a woman that at some point stopped being sexual and some amount of other sexual relationships with women and then at some point later in life he starts to overwhelmingly, if not exclusively, only have sex with men. And as mentioned earlier, people, both people who knew him and journalists writing about him, generally just refer to him as gay. And as I've alluded to, it is difficult to talk about his sexuality in terms of how he conceptualised his sexuality because of how private he was. It's that kind of thing where, given the general circumstances we've just laid out, if we discovered a secret letter with Freddie being like, I identify as gay now, I'd be like, all right, I can see how you would understand yourself that way. And the same if he said bisexual. However, it is clear that this labelling of him as gay by various people isn't the result of a genuine attempt by journalists or a random manager of someone who knew on tour, to understand how he conceptualized himself. Instead, it's because they don't really understand bisexuality as being a valid option that exists. Yes. They very, like, looked at it and gone, well, he changed from straight to gay. Yes. Yeah. So let's just be absolutely clear. Bisexual people exist. And <laughs> it's a valid sexuality. Let's further be clear and say that bisexual people don't have to experience attraction to multiple genders in an even ratio or in the same way for their bisexuality to be valid. And it's very common for that not to be the case. Mm. Yes. I was talking to a friend the other day about how we are going to do a podcast on Freddie, and they were like, oh, so he was openly bisexual, right? I've Mm. heard that, but I've never seen the source where he said he was bisexual. Well. Did he ever say the way? I assume not, based on what you just said. Yeah, I mean, it's a thing where just because Freddie's sexuality certainly could be understood as bisexual it doesn't mean that he personally identifies that yeah and it is very difficult to find i think like clear card quotes about his Mm -hmm. personal life for what it's worth mary records that when they were sort of in the process of breaking up he said to her i think i'm bisexual and she said i don't think you're bisexual i think you're gay and jones records freddie was mortified in a way she told me but he did accept it from her almost immediately 
I mean, I can see where, like, she's coming from, where he's gone. Look, I still love you, but I'm not interested in sex with you. I'm having sex with men at the moment. That's more my thing right now. When she's gone, that's that's not bisexual. That's gay. Yeah, but I but think using that one You moment, can't use that for... From the mid-70s as well. Yeah. To kind of define him thereafter, either as bisexual or as gay, seems quite like... Well, yeah. We're just kind of grasping at straws, aren't we? There's yeah. Another quote in which the publicist who worked with them, Tony Bransby, talked about how you know, like he was very campy and so forth, as we discussed, and then added, but that was different to being gay, and he only ever referred to being bisexual. So we don't have direct quotes, but no. we do have the sense that he did. We do have quotes from him in, like, interviews where he's, like, not so much directly talking about his sexuality in terms of I identify as whatever, but just talking about his love life and his history mm-hmm. of what relationships he's had. And he's kind of been like, oh, yeah, you know, I've tried it with men, I've tried it with women. But then that does only seem to really refer to his history. And, like, no one's debating that he had sex with both men and women. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. still a question of, like, what at any given point did he understand himself to be? So, yeah, I guess ultimately, like, you know. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm happy with that. It's also worth noting that gay and bisexual aren't the only options. Maybe he would have identified as queer or pansexual, or maybe he wouldn't want a label if we were, like, asking him this today in some alternate universe. But what I think we do have to do is, at the very least, have the conversation. Instead mm-hmm. of just being like, oh, yes, gay. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, anyway, so Freddie goes to gay clubs a lot, and a lot of his lovers he meets at gay clubs. What a queer man. Yeah. <laughs> And so one day he goes up to a man in a gay club and <laughs> asks to buy him a drink. And the man replies, fuck off. Okay. And so we're getting some idea of what it's like when Freddie Mercury tries to pick you up in a club now. And Freddie's like, all right, fair enough, and goes off and presumably finds someone else to have sex with that. I've man. got 2,500 other options. <laughs> and this is a man called Jim Hutton. He's a barber. Apparently he didn't know who Freddie was. <laughs> Jim Hutton's boyfriend at the time shows up and is like, who hit on you? What? That's Freddie Mercury. And Jim Hutton's like, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, I guess. A couple of years later, Freddie again sees Jim in a bar, and Jim is single this time. <laughs> and so Freddie goes up to him and says, hey, can I buy you a drink? And Jim says, well, how about I buy you a drink? And so Freddie, in reply, says his like, big pickup line, I guess, which is, how big's your dick? Smooth, Fred. <laughs> and this apparently is fine in the context, because Jim's like, I don't, don't know what he says. That's personal information of Jim Hunt's. But they, you know, have some drinks, they dance, they go home together. When they get home, Freddie cuddles his two cats, Tiffany and Oscar, snorts some cocaine, and goes off to bed. <laughs> Sorry, this question. Do they both remember that they've met before? I believe so, yeah. I think they're kind of aware of each other in the, like, reasonably finite London gay scene. And then in the morning, they exchange phone numbers. There's a bit of a gap before they see each other again, because Freddie is a rock star who tours all over the world. But they do see each other again, and they fall in love. Aww. (laughs) And they're going to stay together for the rest of Freddie's life. Jim Hutton says of their relationship, I fell in love with so much about him, regardless of what he did for a living. He had big brown eyes and an almost childlike personality. He also seemed totally sincere. He was lovely. I was hooked. Oh, that was yeah. nice. So, like, Jim Hutton is on board. <laughs> yeah. But that's a very, like, sort of sweet, calm on board, which is not really what you expect from dating Freddie Mercury, I guess. No, yeah. they do sometimes have quite a rocky relationship. That whole, like, I'm going to have sex with other people, whether you like it or not, comes back. When mm-hmm. sometimes Jim's quite jealous. If I recall correctly, when the relationship starts, Freddie's actually still in another relationship, like another longish term relationship mm-hmm. and kind of uses Jim to make Batman jealous but eventually they break up and he and Jim are now the main relationship and 
I think it stays rocky sometimes, but like they love each other very much. Yeah. All right. So the musician Bob Geldof, to take a sharp right turn to a different subject, in the early 80s sees a special on the Ethiopian famine and is quite alarmed by this. And he decides that he's going to put out a single with this like all-star supergroup called Band-Aid in order to raise money. And this goes reasonably well. Like they pull it off and it sells a bunch. And so he starts to organize a massive concert, Live Aid, in order to continue to raise awareness and funds for the Ethiopian famine. So this concert is gigantic. Uh, It goes for 16 hours. It is in both the UK and America. So, like, the first half of it is in London, and then the other half of it is in America. It's broadcast live to an enormous amount of people. Different sources said 1.5 billion, 1.9 billion, 2 billion. I suspect the last one is rounding up from 1.9 billion, which, on the one hand, fair, but is also 100 million people. How many people in the world at this time? 4.6? So we're picturing, like, every TV set in the world is playing this, basically. Yeah, yes. Well, I suspect the number they're giving you is how many people had access to this rather than how many sat down at their TV and watched it. I don't know where they got these numbers from. But, you know, a lot of people watch it. So before we talk about Queen, which is really why we're talking about this, obviously, we should take a moment to disclaimer that Live Aid and Bob Geldof's charity work is quite dodgy. So it's intended to raise awareness and by raising awareness, put pressure on governments around the world to provide assistance and to raise money. And it does succeed in raising over $100 million. However... What then happens to that money is not the best thing. So Mm -hmm. Spin published an article in 1986 on the use of the live aid money discussing how it was misused in order to essentially exacerbate rather than help the famine. Did it go to the Ethiopian government? It sure did. I'm shocked. They used it to buy weaponry from the Soviets. Okay. Um, And ultimately this seems to have been the result of Bob Geldof just not understanding the political situation on the other side of the world that he is messing with and refusing to be told that. So Doctors Without Borders, for example, told him, like, don't do anything with this money until a proper framework has been put into place in order to handle it and to make sure it does what you want it to do. And he was just like, no. He just wanted it to be a really easy solution where he just chucked money at the Ethiopian government. Yeah. So that's a terrible shame. And I just wanted to make note of that before we continued to talk about this rock show. <laughs> but to return to Queen, this is largely regarded as the best ever Queen show uh, mm-hmm. and one of the best rock performances of all time. Not like the entire thing, Queen specifically. The set they play is 20 minutes long and it's a medley of several of the hits. It's actually the first live Queen performance that Jim Hutton ever saw, which must have been an experience. <laughs> yeah. He was like, oh, so this is my boyfriend's job. Yeah, there are 70,000 people here, I see. It's true. Like, he never heard of Freddie when he met him the first time, apparently. I don't know if he never heard of him or if he just didn't, didn't recognize him. And yeah. didn't, like, really have the full context of who he was. I do like this idea that, like, Freddie goes out to work and does rock shows and Jim goes out to work and cuts hair and then they both just come home and pet the cat. I'm like, how was your day? That seems to be the, the, the circumstance, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Queen just absolutely steals the show and this is down pretty much to Freddie just being an incredible performer. They all play very well, but what people remember is Freddie at the front of the stage being Freddie. He's very energetic. He has the crowd like in the palm of his hand, and he makes them sing to him, and he gets <laughs> them to do the like synchronized Radio Gaga clap. So they do this set. It's received really, really well. They go off stage, and Elton John accosts them, saying, "You bastards! You stole the show." <laughs> uh, Freddie downs a vodka, says, "Thank God that's over." <laughs> declines to go to the huge after party and goes home with Jim and watches the rest of the show on TV with the cats. Oh, Yes. 
<laughs> and Queen's record sales increase usually after the show, so it's a big personal success for them. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the cats? Let's talk about yeah, cats. Yeah, let's talk about cats. I was wondering, because I, I knew you said that you couldn't find much cat content in biographies, and I was like, is that it? Have we done the cat content? No, I, I went and did independent cat research, <laughs> as that was unacceptable to me. So Freddie loves cats so, so, so much. So much. More than, like, any other human I've ever met. (laughs) He has many, many, many cats. His assistant, his long-term assistant, Peter Freestone, could name ten. Dorothy, Tiffany, Tom, Jerry, Delilah, Goliath, Lily, Nico, Oscar, and Romeo. Most of them were adopted from shelters because Freddie wanted to save their lives. The cats are very, very spoiled. They get, like, really nice food made for them and so forth. People note that they're essentially, like, his children. He dotes on these cats. Someone gives him a painted vest of his cats that he loves. (laughs) Pictures of his cats painted onto it. Not just of cats, his cats. Like, portraits of his cats, but painted onto a vest. Yes, and there's pictures of him wearing it. When he's on tour, he would call and ask to speak to the cats, and, like, whoever picked up the phone would just kind of, like, grab the closest cat and, like, squeeze it a bit so it would meow. And he'd be like, oh! Tiffany, <laughs> and I don't know whether it's funny or if he can recognize the cats by voice or if he's just like, oh, Delilah, and it's not Delilah. <laughs> Delilah was his favorite. Oh, There's uh, like 50 billion photos of Freddie Mercury with like 50 billion different cats, so look forward to that content <laughs> Good. being posted everywhere. So we're in the mid-1980s now, and by this point, AIDS exists and public awareness of it is growing, but... There's a lot of misinformation and scaremongering at the time. There is an awareness that is linked to gay people, nothing else. Mm-hmm. And in 1985, Freddie takes a test and it is negative. The AIDS crisis continues to worsen, however, and people Freddie knows are passing away, including his former lover, Tony Baston. In 1985, the band starts their magic tour, which is going to be their last tour. This is the tour in which he wore the like white trousers and the yellow buckled jacket. Oh, yeah. That mm-hmm. iconic image. Mm-hmm. And so they have a very successful tour, as you would expect. At their last gig, which is a sold-out gig at Wembley Stadium, they play an encore of We Are the Champions, and Freddie comes out in this like red velvet silk lined robe, trimmed in <laughs> ermine, six-foot train, wearing oh, a yeah. jewel-encrusted crown and carrying the like sawn off microphone is a scepter and it's, it's a lot <laughs> yes so that's a very high note to end that tour <laughs> in 1987 he takes another test and this time he is told that he has aids he's very very private about this it seems that at this point he only told mary and jim he told jim that he would understand if jim wanted to leave but jim said no i'm in this to the end and they stayed together and Freddie basically starts treatment and tries to carry on as normally as possible. He does quit doing recreational drugs and starts to live a little healthier, but he doesn't tell the band, he doesn't tell anyone. He just tries to carry on as if nothing's happening. So talking about AIDS is difficult at this time in history. I yeah. guess always it was. But I think it's specifically kind of something that the queer community is not really sure how to negotiate at this point. And I think, you know, with the movie Bohemian Rhapsody coming out, it's specifically quite controversial in relation to Freddie at this time. None of us have seen the movie at this point, just to be clear. So we can't really comment on how it handles it, but I've heard a lot of people saying that it shies away from dealing with that and that's inappropriate. And so I kind of had in mind how this would be received and was trying to think about what to include and what not to. Obviously, we were going to talk about the end of Freddie's life. We have a very uncreative approach to this podcast where we just kind of go from birth to death (laughs) but i chose to omit a lot of the detail that was present in the biographies about exactly 
what physical symptoms he experienced. Reading those in the biographies, I frankly didn't feel that they were doing anything productive. And whilst talking about the specifics of what AIDS does to someone in a general setting of education about AIDS in the mid-1980s, I think that that can be tastefully done and it can be a legitimate part of that kind of education. I think focusing on a particular person at the end of their life and how their body's breaking down is very hard to do without being inappropriate and exploitative, basically. Yeah. 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 And I didn't feel that the biographies, although they were well-intentioned, really managed to do that well. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to talk about exactly what physically he experiences. I'm fine with that. Although Friday doesn't say anything to his friends at first, gradually people can see that he is unwell. And although they kind of can figure out what's happening, they follow Freddie's lead and they don't talk about it. He continues to work really hard. And although he hasn't said anything to the band about his illness, he makes it clear that when he can, he's going to come in and record and that it's going to have to accept it at some point during the day. He's going to say, I have to go. And they just operate under those circumstances. As what he is physically able to do becomes more limited, he is obviously finding this very, very frustrating. He has really terrible fights with Jim increasingly. And it kind of gets to the point where he's not able to perform anymore. And so he's shut off from that kind of connection with an audience that he's had for years at this point, which would be mm-hmm. quite emotionally mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. And he's also cut off from relationships with friends because he doesn't want to see them increasingly because of his health and mm-hmm. his appearance. But, you know, he's pushing them away and then missing them because, yeah. you know, he needs people in his life. And also presumably he doesn't have the energy to go out and socialise as much as he yeah. probably did in the past. Yes. And also like, just in terms of how difficult this period is emotionally obviously he's having to face the fact that he's going to pass away soon mm-hmm. which is a difficult thing for someone to have to deal yeah. with he starts to see his parents more often their relationship's been quite strained for quite a long time because of freddie's alienation from their way of life and also because zoroastrianism didn't approve of homosexuality i don't know what the current situation is with zoroastrianism and homosexuality and i won't attempt to comment on that Despite this difficult relationship, his parents have always been very important to him and he's tried to help them whenever he can. So he tries to buy them a house and they refuse and he organises medical treatment for them when they need it and things. Hmm. They stayed with him sometimes and they would pretend that Jim was the gardener, not his partner. Are they aware that he has AIDS? They're aware that he's sick. They must be aware of the possibility. So, like, the media is hounding him this whole time because they know that he is someone who has sex with men and they know that AIDS exists and they know that he's become quite sick. And so the press is kind of onto him and they spend a lot of time being absolutely abhorrent and trying to like, you know, metaphorically like dig through his bins yeah. uh, to find out. And they're publishing speculation about this. And I would assume that his parents are aware of the general gist of what the press says about their song. The rest of the band is also hounded constantly by the press. And because I still haven't talked to, to Freddie about this, they kind of don't really know how to deal with this and are essentially just sort of decide to follow his lead and lie and say he's fine, but it's it's obvious that that's not true. It also means that they're not really able to reach out to him and try and offer support because it's made it very clear that he doesn't want to have that conversation. He does finally speak to them in early 1991, so he's had his diagnosis for four years now and he says you probably realize what my problem is well that's it and i don't want it to make a difference i don't want it to be known i don't want to talk about it i just want to get on and work until i can't work anymore and brian may who i think is the source of this quote sort of said that they all just 
accepted that, decided to support him, and then all went off to be sick in private somewhere individually. So they get on with it. They keep making music. They make a video for a song called I'm Going Slightly Mad. And at this point, you know, he has to go aside and lie down regularly while they're filming. But he delivers this performance that, like, a lot of the crew can't believe it is sick. Like, they know yeah. he's sick, but from his performance, you wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just very impressed with his drive still. A little fact that I liked about that video was that there's a penguin or multiple penguins on set. <laughs> I didn't actually watch the video. And it gets quite distressed because, like, it's in a studio. It's not where penguins are meant to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sort of, despite being around well, takes the time to kind of, like, comfort this penguin. <laughs> which is just very beautiful. <laughs> Soon he has entirely withdrawn from any kind of socialising and he writes his will, he plans out his funeral. In early November of 1991, he decides to come off of his medication. This is obviously advised against by his doctors, but his physical health is in such a state that he would just like this to be over with by now. A constant vigil is held by his bed by his friends, so he isn't alone. And during this time, Freddie decides that he's going to issue a public statement. Jim is suspicious of this. He thinks that Freddie was pressured by someone to give this statement, given how he hadn't wanted to very much previously. Mm-hmm. But in any case, a statement is written and it's released worldwide simultaneously to press uh, in order to avoid the British press getting a scoop because the British press has treated him disgustingly. It reads, Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I have been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth, and I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors, and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. He passed away the next day, the 24th of November, with Jim by his side. His funeral is a very small private service, which I was surprised by, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's conducted in the Avestan language, which is the language that the sacred texts of Zoroastrianism uh, are written in, and it is held in accordance with what's required by the Zoroastrian faith. This is in accordance with his parents' wishes, but also to some degree to his own. I'm not sure how he felt about the religious element in particular, but he did specifically want a very small service, basically kind of feeling like, you know, I don't want everyone to kind of like tear their hair out and, and spend ages grieving over me. Like it's, it's happened. Let's all move on with our lives. Yeah. He leaves the majority of his wealth to Mary and to his family. His giant mansion goes to Mary and she still lives there to this day. Jim is given £500,000, which sounds significant, but so are various other people who work in the house. So his chef is given £500,000. Okay. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. It is uncomfortable. It's Freddie's wish that Jim is able to keep living in the mansion that he's lived in with Freddie, but he doesn't make any kind of legal stipulation allowing him to do this, and after Freddie passes away, Mary gives him three months to leave. That was harsh, Mary. I, I don't know what the dynamic is between her and Freddie's lovers. Like, mm-hmm. not great, I guess. Based on that, I guess not great. Yeah. yeah. I also sort of wanted to be able to contextualize what their relationship was like a little bit more in order to explain the fact that Freddie gives him comparatively a really tiny amount of money and doesn't really look after him in his will. There is likely more of an answer out there, but I don't have an answer and I'm dissatisfied with the situation. 
Do you know when he wrote the will? It was heavily implied in the biographies that it was like shortly before he passed away. I don't know how oh, okay. shortly. I don't know. Like you could get into speculating about people like influencing him or whatever, but I don't really want to do that. Like these people mm-hmm. are still alive. Jim Hutton isn't. He passed away, but Mary's still alive. I don't yeah. want to like yeah. you know, yeah. wildly gossip about what happened whilst Freddie Mercury was dying. So I don't know, but that seems like a raw deal and I feel bad for Jim. Yeah. The walls of the mansion that Mary's still living in have become a shrine to Freddie. His body was cremated and his ashes were given to Mary, who buried them according to his wishes in an undisclosed location. So when she passes away, like, we just won't know. Like, okay. it's as it should be, but it's, like, weird to think about. It. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess that's what we wanted. Okay. Yes. In the nearly 30 years since Freddie Mercury passed away, Queen's obviously remained very popular, and there have been many musical tributes paid to them, many covers of their songs done by various bands. For example, the closing ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics did some Queen music. So they're very much, and it feels almost like too obvious to say this, have established their place as a canonical part of music history, and they're going to stay there for quite a while to come. Freddie's death helped to bring awareness to AIDS, A concert was held in his honour at Wembley Stadium that doubled as a sort of like AIDS awareness event and raised money for a charity that was created called the Mercury Phoenix Trust that funded AIDS research. It sold out within hours. What the concert is, is Queen playing a bunch of Queen songs, but with different singers taking on Freddie, which sounds like a quite nice and potentially moving performance, but for many it fell very flat. And part of the reason for this was that none of the singers were as good as Freddie was and they couldn't do his parts justice. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's what I think when I hear about, like, Queen cover bands or bands covering Queen. Why would you even try? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess that's a fitting situation given that, you know, people are quite openly like, will there ever be a rock singer as good as Freddie Mercury? Doubt it. With that, we have been Queer as Fact. I'm Eli. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter as Queer as Fact. You can also find us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify if you would like to listen to more of our episodes. If you do listen to us on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it if you give us a review or a rating out of five stars or both. It really helps us to find a wider audience. And if you don't want to do that next time, you're not sure what to say on an awkward date with someone or sitting next to someone in class, just just tell them how good our podcast is. That would help us just as much. <laughs> you can also get in touch with us directly at queerisfact at gmail.com if you would prefer. We'll be back on the 1st of January with something a little bit different. Alice, Jason, and I are going to be doing a little recap of queer historical movies that we saw in 2018. We'll be talking about Colette, Vita and Virginia, and of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. So thank you very much for listening. We will see you then, and I would encourage you to go and listen to Queen right now. (laughs) 